Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we are going to read verses 1 through 20, the entire chapter. It's our desire this morning. It's my desire anyway. It may not be yours, but it is my desire. (laughs) Spoke on your behalf without your permission. It's my desire to make our way through the entire chapter. Deuteronomy 31 through 20. And because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading and the receiving of God's word. Moses writes, as he is carried along by God's spirit, these words. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and your enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments, and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in all his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you were going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life 
and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say something like this? I have good news and I have bad news. In fact, I I mentioned Hunter earlier. I did this to Hunter just last week. I won't tell you what I share with him after that. I have good news and I have bad news. And what usually follows is the question, right? Which do you prefer first? The good news or the bad news? And if we polled everyone in the room, I suspect that both sides would be represented. I'm not sure to what degree. However, I always, always prefer receiving the bad news first. I do. I prefer receiving the bad news first. After all, when the good news is good enough, it has the tendency to eclipse the bad news. Doesn't it? This isn't always the case. Sometimes someone sets you up. I've got good news and I've got bad news. Well, Let's hear the good news first. Well, the good news is you're still alive. Well, I knew that. It's not helpful at all. Sometimes we're set up, but at times, at times the good news has an eclipsing or a dwarfing effect on the bad news. So this is how I prefer it. Perhaps I'm just a gospel person and the gospel is an answer, isn't it? To the bad news. Paul said, if I boast in anything, may it be in the, in the, in the uh, cross of Christ. Well, if you've been with us throughout Deuteronomy, you know that this book has had its share of bad news, hasn't it? I mean, you can't walk through much of Deuteronomy without coming face to face with a realistic portrayal of humanity. I would suggest to you that the anthropology, the understanding of humanity throughout Deuteronomy is neither starry-eyed nor is it optimistic. It's just not. If you're looking for good news about your current status outside of the grace of God, don't look to Deuteronomy. In fact, don't look to Scripture at all. This morning, we arrive at Deuteronomy 30, however, where although Moses begins with a bit of bad news, and we're going to see that in just a moment, he begins with really a context that's quite disheartening. He provides, I would suggest, the zenith of the good news in Deuteronomy. We're on the mountaintop here in Deuteronomy 30. And and really, you know, there are 34 chapters in Deuteronomy. We're almost there. And Moses, as a good preacher, reaches the climax of his sermon here toward the conclusion of the book. And really, this book, Deuteronomy itself, is, is a gospel foreshadowing Old Testament book, as we're going to see. We're going to unpack Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 through 20 in three stages. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Perhaps you can just log them away. They're easy to remember. If you're with us on a regular basis, you've probably heard me use these three stages before. And so these these are not original to me. These are stages that I've received over the years from other wiser 
more effective preachers. Here are the three stages. First, we will identify the problem. Moses begins with the problem. And as I shared with you a moment ago, this is really how I like it. Moses begins with the problem. He doesn't dwell long here. This is really just a short bit in the sermon, but we've got to start where Moses starts with the problem. So again, in your notes, don't leave much there. You're gonna need more room for point two. Number one is the problem. Number two is the solution to this problem. And this is really the bulk of Deuteronomy chapter 30. It will be the bulk of our sermon this morning. And then finally, after looking together at the problem and the solution to the problem, we will conclude our time together with application or ways in which the Spirit of God is instructing us through this problem and through this solution for us as 21st century followers of Jesus Christ. So problem, solution, application. That's the roadmap for us. Let's begin by looking together at verse one where we begin to see the problem. Look with me at the text. Verse one, and when all these things come upon you, notice he says, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Now stop there. Here's the problem. Israel will disobey God and be scattered among the nations. This isn't news to you if you've been with us in Deuteronomy. Moses continues to revisit this problem. Israel will disobey God and they will be scattered among the nations. God will pluck them out of the land eventually and he'll scatter them in exile all around the world. Notice it. Moses prophetically describes this time in the future when Israel will have experienced both the blessings and the curses of the covenant relationship established by God. And if you were with us just a few weeks ago, we unpacked Deuteronomy 27 and 28, two chapters, almost 100 verses. And in those two chapters, Moses details the covenant blessings for obedience to God and the covenant curses for disobedience to God. And now Moses prophesies, as it were, in his sermon, and he tells of a time when all of the blessings and all of the curses will have fallen on the people of Israel. But tellingly, I want you to notice this, tellingly, Moses does not describe a situation in which Israel really is experiencing God's blessing. Did you notice that? Notice that he portrays Israel in the future as calling the blessings and curses to mind. And then here's the phrase, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Where will Israel be when they remember all the blessings God promised and the curses God promised? They will be in exile. They'll recall these things when they are scattered by the Lord their God. Now we're not gonna turn back there. You can mark this down if you like. Deuteronomy 28, verses 64 and 65 is where God's covenant curses reach a climax. God's curses would climax when God uprooted Israel from the land, scattered them among the nations. And this is precisely the condition in which the Israelites will find themselves according to Moses' prophecy right here in our text in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. In fact, this is similar to what we observed last week in Deuteronomy 29, I feel a bit like a broken record, but that's preaching, isn't it? That's gospel preaching. In Deuteronomy 29, when we said, 
reflecting what Moses communicates as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, Israel should obey, but Israel will not obey. They should obey, but they will not obey. And so now Moses takes it to the next step. Israel will disobey and be scattered among the nations. That's precisely the path Israel is on. That's the problem. Secondly, and as I mentioned, we'll spend the majority of our time on the second point because this is where Moses spends the majority of his time. Secondly, Moses describes the coming solution. Now, what's the solution? I gave you a sneak peek of this last Lord's Day, if you were with us. But let me state the solution and then we'll unpack the solution from the text of Scripture. Here's the solution. God will transform the hearts of his people. That's the solution. God will transform the hearts of his people and, we could add to this, regather them from among the nations. So if the problem is Israel will disobey God and they will be scattered among the nations, the solution is God is going to perform an internal work in the hearts among his people. He's going to reorient their hearts. He's going to transform their hearts. And as a result, he's going to regather his people in his presence someday. Look with me at verses 1 through 3, if you would. Verses 1, 2, and 3. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord, your God, has driven you. Verse 2. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I commanded you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Don't miss that. That's a refrain throughout this chapter. And it's been a refrain throughout Deuteronomy. With all your heart and with all your soul, verse three, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again. How about that? He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So there will come a day when Israel returns to the Lord, God's people return to him. Moreover, notice verse five, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So God's going to take his scattered people throughout all the nations. He's going to bring them back into his promised presence, pictured here, portrayed here as the land of Canaan, and they will experience the kind of life and prosperity that he promises through covenant faithfulness and divine blessing. Now, there's a lot here. We're not going to be able to say everything we want to say or I want to say about this, but we'll unpack a bit of this. Moses has spent many verses at this point demonstrating that although Israel should obey, they will not, and indeed they cannot obey. Do you recall that? Up until this point, the last chapter told us, up until this point, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So they're not simply going to disobey. They simply don't have the capacity to obey. They won't obey because they can't obey. That's bad news. So then how in the world, how in the world will Israel move from disobedience, covenant cursing, and let's add to that, back in chapter 29, I believe it's verse four or so, the inability to obey. How will they move from inability, incompetence spiritually and morally, Covenant cursing to covenant blessing and obedience and ability. How will that happen? Look with me at 
verse 6. Some have suggested that verse 6 is the answer to the problem in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring. So that, here's the result, this is a purpose clause, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. There's the language again. That you may live. Now earlier in Deuteronomy, chapter six, verse five, this has been some time ago, hasn't it? We learned that authentic obedience to God looked like this. Here's the language God uses through Moses. Back in chapter six, verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And many of you perhaps will consider when you hear those words, the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 22 when he's asked the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says, the greatest commandment in the law, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, love the Lord your God with all that you are to summarize him. So that command is given earlier in Deuteronomy. And this frames the concept of obedience. What does it mean to obey the Lord in Deuteronomy? It's never merely external. We've got to get that. I can't say this enough. So often, New Testament Christians actually aren't New Testament Christians at all because they misread their Old Testaments. And they think that the Old Testament was concerned primarily with these external rituals and external obedience to God, when in fact, at the center, really the epicenter of God's instruction to his people was an orientation of the, of the affections and of the will and of the desires to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Additionally, in Deuteronomy, we found in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God actually issues this command, and it was Fascinating, when we came across it, he says, circumcise your hearts, O Israel. Circumcise your hearts. In some respects, God commands the impossible there. In another respect, what he's actually doing is he's establishing, graciously establishing tension that can only be resolved through his promise and fulfillment. So he commanded to circumcise your hearts. He commanded his people to love him with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. And this really does get at the most fundamental problem we face as human beings. Our fundamental problem is not, I would say, is not disordered lives. Our fundamental problem, our root problem, is not what we do or don't do. Rather, our fundamental problem is disordered desires disordered affections, disordered wills. Because the reality is this, we do what we want to do. We're not coerced. And, and there's this tension, isn't there? The tension is we find ourselves doing things we know we shouldn't want to do, but we want to do it. We find ourselves ashamed of what we actually want because we know what we actually want is wrong. We really do have a moral compass. Romans 2 teaches us. Romans 1 and Romans 2. But as the Apostle Paul says, I, I do the things I, I hate. And I don't do the things that I love. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? This is our fundamental problem. 
This is what it means to be broken. This is how we have been impacted in every facet of our existence by Genesis chapter 3. Our problem is not simply one of environment. Our our problem isn't simply we're around the wrong influences in our lives. And it's easy, isn't it, as parents to think to ourselves, and we don't actually say this because we know this is not true, but we live as if we can just get our children in the right environment, then out will pop a, a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And while God uses means, God certainly uses those avenues. He uses various habits in order to form and nurture Christian virtues, the reality is this. No environment can rescue us because our problem is not external. Our problem is internal. I think every well-meaning parent honest with this understands that one of our desires as parents, I can, let me just tell my story. I, I desire to protect my children. I do. I desire with all my might to be able to shield them from everything that may infect them from the outside. And I find on a regular basis that the problem isn't outside. That as I shield them, I've also shielded the problem within. And I find it in my own life, I hope you do as well, Christians. I find in my own life that while the Lord uses environments to encourage me, to motivate me, to strengthen me in the gospel, that, that my deepest problem actually surface from with, surfaces from within. As Jesus says, it's not that which is outside of a man that enters and defiles a man, but it's what comes from within the man that defiles the man. And Deuteronomy is addressing this fundamental problem These activities, that is how we feel our affections, the seat of our wills, these are summarized in the Bible with the word heart. The heart is the control center for the human being. And I've not invented that definition, by the way. I've borrowed it from a number of people that use it. The heart is the seat of longing and desires. The heart is what causes a person to do the things he or she does, even when those activities may feel wrong in the moment, even when that person may assess those activities as morally unethical and wrong and misguided. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, what does God promise? God promises to circumcise the hearts. It's fascinating. He promises to transform his people internally. He's not simply going to change us on the outside. He's going to change us from within. That's the promise. And this transformative and spiritual work is described in various ways throughout Scripture, by the way. We, we mentioned this last Lord's Day. It bears repeating even this Lord's Day. Jeremiah, for example, Jeremiah the prophet, will describe it later on. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. He'll describe it as God putting his law within us. It's good news. Putting his law within us and then inscribing his law on our hearts rather than inscribing his law on tablets of stone. Ezekiel describes this same work. Okay, so Deuteronomy, it's circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah, it's God putting his law within us and inscribing it on our hearts. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, God provides a new heart 
and a new spirit. In fact, as he goes on to say, God will put his spirit within us. And he describes this kind of removing of the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. All of this imagery communicates the same fundamental, supernatural, spiritual work of God, whereby he transforms his people finally from within. He finally gives, provides what his people need most because of the presence of our sin. And don't misunderstand, God didn't cause the problem, we did. God didn't cause the problem, we caused the problem. God provides a solution in his kindness. And this is, this is the solution to Israel's most fundamental problem. And, and by the way, I'm tempted to walk through it. We're not gonna do that, I don't think. No, we're not gonna do that. He's encouraged me to go astray, go astray here, everybody. No. You got time, right? You packed your lunch, didn't you, brother? Israel throughout Deuteronomy, just get this in your mind. And remember this, Israel is a picture, microcosm, of humanity as a whole. And that's important because throughout Deuteronomy, the language is used that echoes the Garden of Eden. Israel is entering the land. By the way, that's the same language used early in Genesis concerning the Garden of Eden, the land. And they're entering the land um, in which they are to live in God's presence. And disobeying in the land will result in them being expelled from the land. What happened to Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God? They were removed from the land. Israel is told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. What does that sound like? What God commissioned Adam and Eve to do in the Garden of Eden, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And what's tricky here is our English translations will oftentimes translate the land as the earth. And I don't think that's wrong, by the way. I don't. Um, I think that that's accurate in places. But we miss something, we lose something when we do that because when you're holding an English translation and the translation reads the land and another, trans- and another location reads the earth, what oftentimes is, is missed is it's the same Hebrew word. And so Israel, you need to know this, Israel... It's not simply a picture of Israel. They are a picture of humanity. One early Christian theologian and pastor, Irenaeus. If you know anything about me, you know I love Irenaeus. And we've quoted Clement. Adam quoted Clement. Where's Adam? He was over here, I think, probably, wasn't he? He always sits over here. No, Adam's not in here. Adam disappeared on me. He's that way. It was pointed. Scott, you pointed. He's over there hiding. Adam quoted Clement of Rome. Well, not long after Clement, you've got Irenaeus. Irenaeus is late second century. Clement, early first, early second century. I'm sorry, late first, early second century. And one of the things that Irenaeus does is he teaches us to read our Bibles. Of course, as he doesn't invent this. He learns this from the New Testament. He teaches us to read our Bibles in cycles. Irenaeus says that things come back around as we're reading the text. And so we start in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve are, are removed from the Garden of Eden and they go through this season outside of the Garden of Eden and then God in his mercy calls the people back to himself and he brings them into the land again. And so you've got this cycle, this constant cycle. And then eventually, of course, Israel will disobey and be removed from the land and God will call them back to the land, and so on and so forth. And all this climaxes, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ when God is regathering a people around his son, the Lord Jesus. Well, this happens in Deuteronomy. Don't miss that. 
Don't miss that Israel is a picture of all of humanity. And isn't that Paul's point in Romans? Paul's point in Romans is that Israel is in the same predicament that the Gentiles are in. No matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you have the same fundamental problem. You're broken internally. Your affections and your wills are disordered. You need to be put back together from the inside out. And then when we arrive in the New Testament, we learn that this promise, the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, that is the circumcision of the heart, now becomes a reality through the person and work of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me mention a couple of passages to you to consider. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. This concept of being Jewish is not merely one outward, ethnic, or national. Nor, he says, is circumcision outward and physical. Now, where would he get that? He's just reading his Old Testament. Circumcision is not merely outward and physical. Then he goes on to say, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. What is Paul saying? God is bringing to fruition and fulfillment this promise that someday he's going to circumcise the hearts of his people. And God in his mercy, by the way, is extending this promise to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's precisely what happens and, and by the way, how I read my New Testaments, I am one of those that interprets Romans 11 as God mercifully calling back the ethnic people of Israel to himself in a kind of massive revival. That's how I interpret Romans 11. But I do understand that the promises given to Israel actually extend in the person and work of Jesus Christ to everyone who places their faith in Christ. Because in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God. And this is why Paul can write this way. In Philippians chapter three, verse three, for example, Paul claims the following. He says, for we are the circumcision. We are the people who are characterized by true circumcision, he says. Who worship by the spirit of God. There it is. Because it's the spirit who will accomplish the circumcision of the heart. And we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, now back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And in verses 11 through 14, we're kind of moving through this. Verses 11 through 14, Moses contrasts what God promises with the covenant God made with Israel Mount Sinai. In other words, he's contrasting what God is promising now on the plains of Moab. He's contrasting that with the covenant God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. Now, this is tricky. It's, it's difficult to entangle some of this in Deuteronomy 30, but I think you'll see some of it. So there's a contrast happening. What God is promising to do someday on the plains of Moab and what he did in relationship to Israel on Mount Sinai. Notice verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Now again, what commandment? This is what Moses is talking about and prophesying 
at this point. This commandment is not hard for you. Because there is a commandment that is too hard for you, isn't there? It's the commandment on Mount Sinai, do this and you will live. That's too hard. But God's doing something here and he's, he's intimating and he's promising something that will empower you, that will actually provide not simply God's demands, but the ability to fulfill those demands. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Now this is beautiful. Verse 12. It is not in heaven, notice, that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? And we'll come back to that. Verse 13, neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us, bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now, what in the world is Moses talking about? And Paul will actually quote this in Romans 10. Consider this. Where did God give his instructions to Moses so that Moses could then bring it to Israel on the top of a mountain. For an ancient, to go up a mountain was described in this way, to go up into heaven. Well, here, Moses says, it's not in heaven so that someone has to go up a mountain to get it for you. Moreover, Moses led Israel, didn't he, out of Egypt and across and through what? The sea. Notice that. You don't have to go across the sea to obtain this commandment as you did on Mount Sinai. That's the contrast. This is different than Mount Sinai. It's not, as it were, really finally contrasted. It's, it's more of a building upon, but there are some senses in which what God is promising is going to be different than what he did on Mount Sinai. It's not as if Israel has to stand at the foot of the mountain, distant from God, and someone has to go up the mountain to get it and bring it down, and bring down, as it were, according to the Apostle Paul, these commandments that result in death. Or it's not as if someone has to cross the sea in order to get it and bring it back. Instead, as God promises in verse 14, concerning what he's going to do, again, this is all building upon what God promised back in verse six to circumcise the hearts. But the word is very near you. Now this is where Paul capitalizes in Romans 10. The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your what? There it is. Why is it in your heart? because of the circumcision of the heart. You see? So that you can what? Do it. What has Moses told us time and time and time again regarding the law? You should do it. You can't do it. What is he saying now? A day is coming when God will circumcise the heart he will provide something that is far superior than what he provided on Mount Sinai. And it will result in our ability, empowered by the Spirit of God, to do it. In other words, the new work will not be inscribed on tablets of stone, but will be accomplished in the hearts of God's people. And this new work will manifest in the mouths of God's people. Now, we're going to come full circle here, but 
Follow with me. It's difficult to entangle all of this. This is how Paul appears to interpret Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. And you don't have to turn there, but it's in Romans 10, verses 5 through 10. I'm going to read that quickly. Romans 10, 5 to 10. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And then in Romans 10, verse 6, he says, but the righteousness based on faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ, says this. And then he quotes Moses. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And then he adds a parenthetical note, that is to bring Christ down. You don't have to bring Christ down. Christ came down is his point. Don't miss this. Oh, don't miss this. You can't go up and get it. Christ brings it to you. You see what Paul's doing? Or who will descend into the abyss? Boy, there's a lot there. There's a relationship between the sea and the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You don't have to go into the grave to obtain it. Christ himself comes out of the grave to provide it. You see this? If this were 20 years ago at Sweet Home Missionary Baptist Church, you'd all be standing up here at this point. Some of you at this point would have joined me here. And then I would have eventually been run out of the pulpit and someone else would have been preaching. Who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Verse 8, Paul says, Romans 10. But what does it say? What does the word of faith say? In Deuteronomy 30, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Paul says that is the word of faith that we proclaim, verse 9, because, and you know this, many of you, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That popular statement is just an interpretation of Deuteronomy 30. It is very near you in your mouth and in your heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. On Sinai, Moses has crossed the sea to obtain God's law with Israel. And he ascends the mountain to retrieve God's law for Israel. But in the gospel, the incarnate God comes to us. This is why we speak a better word. This is why we're empowered now by the work of the Spirit of God to do what Israel could never have done. And this is also why everything we read about was written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. And notice that, and we're going to come back to this as a glorious invitation in Christ, but notice that this promise does not preclude Israel's moment of decision in the present. So verse 15, Moses is still preaching passionately, choose life. He's still doing that, okay? He's not saying, well, you can't, so it doesn't matter. Let's close in prayer. 
No, he's, he's still passionately proclaiming choose life because, by the way, it's still, of course, possible by the work of the Spirit of God prior to the coming of Christ to bring an Israelite to saving faith in the one who would come. And so look at verse 15, for example. We won't go through all of these. Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. That's language of the Garden of Eden. Now verse 19, skip down to verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Why heaven and earth? You need two or three witnesses. He's told us that in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19. So heaven and earth bear witness there before Israel that very day that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life. Israel, just get that. You can't go get it. God will bring it to you. Rest in him. He is the source of your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob. Well, let's just summarize where we've been so far. We've found a problem. The problem is Israel will disobey God and they will be scattered among the nations. But remember, Israel is a picture of humanity. So humanity disobeys God. Second, we highlighted the solution. Because Israel doesn't just disobey God, they aren't able to obey. We don't just disobey God, we fundamentally aren't able, are we? To do what we know we ought to do, even though we know we ought to do it. Our problem is not environmental. Our problem is not lack of information. We know it. Our problem is ability. And so we found the solution. God will transform the hearts of his people. He will circumcise the hearts of his people. He will replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He will write his law, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He will put his spirit within his people so that then his people finally, authentically, genuinely obey him. And he will regather them in his presence from among all nations, tribes, and tongues. Well, let's conclude with a time of application, shall we? We've been through the problem and the solution. Let's, let's reflect for just a moment. I'm gonna give you three ways I think this text calls us to faith and obedience in Christ Jesus. And the first one is quite simple. Repent and trust in the one through whom internal change is possible. That is, repent of your sins and your inability because you're in the predicament you're in because of human sin. Repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ who doesn't stand on the top of a mountain or across a sea and demand that you come to him, but who has come to you, who has lived in obedience for you. He's merited the covenant blessings through his own obedience so that what God actually demanded of you, Jesus provides for you. And he bore your sins on the tree, on Golgotha, on the cross. And he died. He died the covenant curse. He became a curse for us on the tree. He was buried. 
And he was raised in glorious power on the third day, demonstrating a whole host of things, of course. One, that he is the first fruits of what will come, what God was doing in the world and continues to do and will someday finalize. And this same Jesus, of course, now sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father and will someday come back to this earth to make all things new again. And so as you trust in Jesus Christ, what happens? Well, one of the things that happens as you're trusting in Jesus Christ is the Spirit of God lives within you. And what that means is that's a fulfillment of what God is promising in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, to circumcise the hearts. Because this is a spiritual work. And you will not, look, I promise you, you won't wake up tomorrow perfect unless you're in the presence of Christ for one of two reasons. Christ returns or you pass from this life. But what will likely happen if you come to embrace Jesus Christ in faith today is you will wake up tomorrow in war. You will be in a battle. You will still find yourselves struggling with some of the things you know you ought not be struggling with But over time, what you will find if you authentically trust in Jesus, you will find that the things you ought to do are slowly becoming the things you want to do. That's circumcision of the heart. I still, and we could pull some of our Grandmothers and grandfathers in the faith in this room who have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive, and I suspect they would say the same thing. I still find myself doing things that I know I should not be doing. But I can authentically say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me did not prove vain. I am being transformed. I am authentically being changed. And so... Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And join us on this journey of internal transformation of of God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. And if that's where you are, you'd like to talk more perhaps with someone who can talk with you about the Lord Jesus or about Christianity, about all of this, then would you consider staying afterward and having a conversation with us? You can exit this room and take a left And the room I described earlier when we first began this service, on the right-hand side out there before you leave this building is a room called Crossroads. There will be a pastor in there who would love to visit with you about what it means to be transformed in Christ Jesus. That's our prayer for you today. Second, another way I think this text informs us as 21st century people in addition to repenting and trusting in the one through whom this internal change is possible. Secondly, seek to obey God with all your heart and with all your soul. Seek to obey God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, this is assuming something. This is assuming you know Jesus Christ. This is assuming that you've trusted in Christ and you're being made new and transformed by the power of Christ and the spirit of Christ. But as that's happening, hold nothing back. To use that that refrain in Deuteronomy 30, seek to love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Don't settle for partial obedience. 
Don't settle for stagnation. For some of you in the room, I suspect, there was a season in your life you came to know Jesus, perhaps, and you've experienced exponential growth. But for some of you, it may be that that feels distant now. Perhaps it feels as though you have gone through a long season of complacency, of being stagnant, of not growing in the ways in which you know you ought to be growing because you've resisted the work of the Spirit of God. Let me reassure you of a couple of things. Number one, God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. When we go through these seasons, the problem is looking at us in the face when we look into a mirror. And you know that. But number two, God in his mercy continues to do what he once did in your life. He continues to make sinners new. So it may be that you've, you've known him, but you've been stunted. You've not been growing in the ways that you ought to grow. Repent. Repent and ask the Lord, what is it, Lord, that I'm holding back from you? What is it that I've clenched my fists around so that I say to you, I'll follow you wherever you go, Lord, as long as it doesn't involve this? What is this? And lay it at the feet of Christ this morning. Give it all to him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What are you fearful of losing And that's probably what it is you're holding on to. When you think about not having this, it cripples you. And maybe that's that's what you're hiding behind your back. God in mercy and sovereignty and wisdom knows, okay? You're not going to surprise him. You're not going to come to him this morning and him say to you, you know, I didn't know this. Here I thought you gave everything to me and I was unaware. This is not the God we serve. That perhaps the spirit of God is is, is pricking, as it were, your soul this morning, your conscience, to give it all to him. I couldn't help but think this week of those wonderful words, all for Jesus, not a, not a hymn we often sing, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Are you there this morning? Give it all to him. And then third, And we'll wrap up with this. Third, take the message of Christ to the nations with confidence that God will regather his people in Christ Jesus. Take the message of Christ to the nations with great confidence that God will regather and is regathering his people from among the nations. Now, by the way, this includes, I've I've betrayed my position here, this includes, according to Romans 11, I think some faithful theologians don't agree with me, and that's fine. They can be wrong. I will gladly change my view if I need to when Jesus returns. But I do take it that God in his mercy will extend his hand to ethnic Israelites again someday and call them back to himself. But I also take it that this promise extends to all nations in such a way that, for example, in Romans 7, what do you have? You have people from every nation, tribe, and tongue bowing at the foot of Christ. That's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise 
And so ironically, what happens is God scattering the people of Israel to all the nations is a picture of another Babel. Genesis 11, God's people, humanity, are scattered. Here again, Deuteronomy 30, God's people will be scattered. What's the solution? Well, God's gonna send the gospel and call his people to himself. Who are his people? Everyone who trusts in Christ. So what do we do? We plead with everyone. Be reconciled to God. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sins. Come to Christ when in actuality we reassure them he is coming to you and he has come to you supremely in the incarnation, death, and resurrection. So take this gospel with confidence. To Powell, by the way, we're one of those nations in America. Take this gospel to Powell, take it to East Tennessee, take it to Tennessee, take it to America, take it to North America, take it to the nations with great confidence. Well, just in summary, again, as Moses indicates, Israel would disobey and be scattered among the nations. However, God would transform the hearts of his people and he would regather them from among the nations. And he's doing this now. He's doing it now among us and through us in Jesus Christ. And he will continue to do this until Jesus returns. So repent and trust in Christ. Seek to obey God with all your heart and with all your soul and take the gospel to the nations with great confidence. John Newton, I want to finish with words from Newton. He once penned words that summarize well the promise of transformation we find in Deuteronomy 30. And I hope this encourages you as we leave this place together. Listen to these words. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. Let's pray together. Father, that is our desire. And it is our desire because you have worked in us through Christ. We love you because you first loved us and sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. May it be progressively, increasingly, according to your mercy, through the power of the spirit who lives within us, that what we ought to do more and more becomes what we want to do. And give us strength and confidence to go to the world around us with the message of transformation in Christ. In his name and in hope of his return, we pray these things in all God's people said.